1: system and in light of that this morning as europeans we made a shared decision as of tomorrow midday
0: the european union
1: borders and the schengen borders will be closed
0: what this means specifically is any travel between non-european
1: countries and the european union will be suspended for the next 30 days
2: hello and welcome to marxist voice uh, my name is adam booth and obviously what you're hearing in the background there is the famous introduction to the band europe and their track the final countdown and that is what today we're going to be discussing it is the existential threat posed by the COVID-19 pandemic to the European Union uh, which as we just saw from Macron's speech just there is uh, leading to borders rising and all of the fundamental pillars of the European project suddenly being eroded by this coronavirus crisis. So in a minute We're going to be joined by Josh Holroyd, who's a fellow member of the Socialist Appeal Editorial Board, along with myself, Um, and uh, he is our resident expert on Europe, on the EU, and he's going to be discussing with us uh, about the question of the European Union and uh, what kind of future lies ahead for this. Um, so with, uh, in a minute, I'll bring in Josh, but just before uh, a reminder that this is as ever a live podcast and you can follow it if you're not already, obviously. Well, if you're watching, you should be following it on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and of course, subscribe to our podcast, Marxist Voice, where you can get further episodes and shows in the coming days and weeks. Uh, A reminder also, check out the website socialist.net and if you want to support us please join, donate and subscribe. Now uh, without further ado then, let me just get Josh on the line. Hello Josh, can you hear us okay?
1: Hi Adam, yeah I can hear you fine.
2: (laughs) Yeah good, nice to see you. You staying safe and healthy?
1: Yep. Good as can be. How about
2: you? You all right? Yeah, yeah, finding quarantine just about okay, but I've uh, <laughs> I've I've pretending that the uh, the the socialist appeal offices are behind me because I've missed them so much. Uh, this is the book <laughs> sh- the book the bookshelf that I'm sure you're familiar with uh, yeah, stocked there. full of uh, excellent titles from Well Read Books. So head to wellreadbooks.net everyone at home uh, in order to get your Marxist classics for reading in quarantine. So nice Josh, um, you, you, uh, you may have heard just there us playing uh, a track I'm sure yourself and other millennials are familiar with, <laughs> with the final countdown. Um, and, uh, well, is this the final countdown for Europe, uh, for the <laughs> European Union? Um, as uh, as we showed with Macron there, you know, borders are going up, uh, the freedom of movement is being restricted. Can you explain to us what exactly is happening to the European Union in the face of this crisis?
1: Well, yeah, I suppose I should start by saying that this is the deepest crisis, the most serious crisis that the European Union has faced in its entire history. Um, You've probably seen in the news lots of people referring to this crisis, both in terms of the, the, the social, the health effects of the coronavirus pandemic, of course, but also the economic effects being the deepest crisis Europe has faced since the Second World War which is clearly an incredibly deep social and economic crisis, and it's worth remembering that the European project, as it's called, began in the post-war boom, after the Second World War, so this is the by far the deepest crisis the European Union and its institutions have ever faced, and what we're seeing under the pressure, under the shock of this immense crisis, is all of the, the contradictions that have lain at the heart of this European project since the very beginning. And were really brought to the fore back in, in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, in the eurozone crisis. They are coming straight to the surface again, and we, we are seeing a process. I, I believe a process of unraveling in the eurozone and the European Union, which could well mean that, that you know we are seeing its final countdown. We we can't say with one hundred percent certainty, but we are we are seeing an existential crisis. So what exactly
2: does that consist of in terms of you talked about the unraveling of the European Union? Like, what are the main pillars of the European Union? How are they being affected by this pandemic?
1: Well, one, perhaps the most important economic foundation of the European Union is the single market, which I'm sure everybody's heard of. And the single market has what's known as four freedoms. See them as four pillars holding the whole thing up. And one is the free movement of people. The other is the free movement of goods. The other is the free movement of services and then the free movement of capital. Now, in the face of the coronavirus pandemic, which uh, arrived in Europe, I think, uh, back in February, initially in Italy, and then, of course, spread, you've had a complete um, suspension of free movement of people and even restrictions affecting the free movement of goods. With regard to the free movement of people, um, which is perhaps but it's considered one of the most, if not the most fundamental of all the free, fundamental freedoms. Um, Jean-Claude Juncker, who was the European Commission president actually said that without free movement of people, the Euro itself doesn't make sense. Um, initially on the 6th of March, uh, European ministers actually said that they were endeav- endeavour to keep freedom movement and borders open. But then what we started seeing was individual member states, I think the Czech Republic was the first one, close their borders, close them, to other, Schengen, and Schengen, of course, is the free movement, the kind of visa agreement between the continental European Union countries, closed its borders with fellow Schengen member states. Now, this is more or less unprecedented. At the height of the migrant crisis in 2015, you had some temporary fixing of borders between member states, but that was very rapidly pulled down because of the threat it poses to European integration. Now, After that, I think it was on the 13th of March, the the Czech Republic imposed those without any say-so from the European Commission or any of the European institutions. Now we are in a position where 21 of the 26 Schengen countries have closed their uh, borders, including to other Schengen countries. And I think it was on the 17th of March, the uh, the European Commission announced that it's it's closing all of its external borders, so the the borders of the bloc with the rest of the world, are now and are closed. And
2: how do, how does that compare? You mentioned the refugee crisis in 2015.
1: How how big was the shutdown of the borders then compared to this? Um, it it was in in terms of internally within the Schengen bloc, it was insignificant compared to this. Uh, you had a couple of member states. I think Austria, for a very short period of time, um, closed its border with um, Slovenia, I think, because of the fears of um, migrants coming up, refugees coming up through the the Balkans. But that was very quickly um, alleviated, basically, in part because of the fear of the member states that if they suddenly start closing borders between each other, then the whole house of cards, if you like, will start to collapse. Because, I mean, I already referred to Jean-Claude Juncker's quote about uh, the euro not making sense. But also, if you can't have the free movement of people, then the free movement of goods and the free movement of almost complete shutdown uh, free movement of people. Actually, to come back to that very quickly, it's understandable, I'm sure many people will think it's understandable, bearing in mind, internally countries are on lockdown, that you're not going to have travel between them anyway. So shutting down the borders in a crisis like this is not uh, such a big deal, it might seem. It's not so much the fact that it's happened. Um, it's also the way it's happened, that the no endpoint has been set. Even worse, from the standpoint of European integration, the European Commission does not have the power to order these national member states to open their borders again. So you could have a situation where different member states have totally different ideas about when they're going to open them up, um, and a big, you know, fight could um, emerge over holdouts uh, saying that no, for internal security reasons, they still have to restrict uh, European uh, travel between the uh, Schengen member states, and this, uh, this is it would be an existential crisis. Uh, But moving back on to to goods, we've seen that in in Italy, which has borne the brunt of the crisis, although Spain has also been very, very hard hit in terms of the numbers of deaths. Italy, we've seen shocking images from Italy of people uh, lying in in corridors and and health uh, workers having to decide who lives and who dies effectively, health workers themselves lacking protective equipment. I mean, scenes that we'll we'll, uh, recognize in our own uh, country as well. And um, in February, in late February, so this is quite early on in the crisis, Italy issued a call to European um, fellow uh, European member states to provide it with medical equipment to help it fight this crisis. At this time, Italy was by far and away the the most affected by the crisis and not a single European member state responded. In addition to that, Germany actually prevented, it temporarily banned the exports of required medical equipment out of fears but it might not have enough itself now this is pretty much unprecedented and is a complete breach if not to the, of the letter at least of the spirit of the free movement of goods when a state is basically saying no you can't uh, you know, it's a private businesses. You can't sell your goods to uh, across borders to another member state because we need them. It completely undermines the whole purpose of the free movement of goods and of the single market itself. Now. So,
2: so, so Josh, you've got the, 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 the abolition of the, the freedom of movement of people, of goods. What What's actually left of the European Union's pillars, if you like?
1: I mean, uh, formally speaking, they all exist, of course, the Euro, which is at least from the standpoint of the main Eurozone countries, is clearly a very important pillar of of European integration. Uh, There isn't really much left at the moment. It almost feels like the European Union has abolished itself in order to prevent itself from collapsing. However, in reality, the European Union still continues to exist. It's more that its rules and institutions have been left suspended in midair, which kind of shows... If you look at the European Union as it's uh, as simply its rules, um, then you would be entitled to conclude that it doesn't. It, it basically has been abolished. But what we'll see is that uh, what we've seen many times in the history of the European Union, and this applies to to legal systems within our you know nation states, that, that the rules can be bent and broken as and when the needs of the major players require it, and we're seeing this now.
2: So I guess that raises the question. Really, you talk about the history of the EU what is really the purpose of the EU like why was it founded what What does it represent like you know who's keeping it going and, and in, for what interests?
1: Well nominally the purpose is to work towards greater and greater integration across the continents of Europe eventually with a view I think in, in the eyes of the founders of the uh, the European project with a view eventually to having some kind of unified European Federation, a, a capitalist state, but unified across the continent. Um, in reality, as we've seen, it's, um, it's not so much its rules, its institutions, it's more just a, a gentleman's agreement, I would say, between the, the major powers of Europe and their satellites, and its agreement based on common interests. Um, you can see with the founding of the European coal and steel community, which I suppose marks the beginning of the European projects in 1952, you see countries like, you know, old former powers like Germany, like France, Italy, the Benelux countries, huddling together in the wake of the Second World War, where the European old powers find themselves drastically weakened compared to the Soviet Union to the east, which was clearly considered an existential threat, to the the United States of America, which was then and still is now the the single greatest capitalist imperialist power on Earth. And so they came together in in order to protect themselves effectively from these outside um, competitors and threats, but also to be able to pool resources. And actually, Robert Schuman, who's considered one of the founding fathers of the European Union, actually said it explicitly in a declaration in 1947, I think, with the intention of better being able to, in their words, develop the African continent, in other words to be able to some somehow maintain their imperialist interests elsewhere. Now in a period of unprecedented boom really in the, in the capitalist in the world economy in the, in the post-war boom, these common interests more or less align and when you know the rising tide is lifting all boats, they're able to, uh, to come to quite happy agreements and you see integration over those decades uh, building up uh, you know increasing and eventually have the creation of the euro. In the, in the 1990s, but what we're starting to see is that throughout this whole time, although you might say that the limitations of the nation state, the national interest have been partially overcome, in striving to unify the European continent. Those national interests and those national capitalist class uh, classes, sorry, those national markets still very much exist. And in times of crisis, when times get hard, those interests that were temporarily aligned into stark contradiction with one another we saw this in the euro uh, zone crisis from 2009 onwards and we're seeing this very very clearly today and that i think when i talk about well if if we just look at the rules then the european union doesn't exist i don't mean to be flippant by that it's to get to the central point that really institutions and the rules and the kind of the treaties that they've drawn up matter a lot less than the, the willingness and the desire of the ruling classes of europe to actually remain in this marriage, if you like, and so that who, is that who, agreement that's fraying right now.
2: Who who's at the heart of this marriage? I mean, a marriage between two people, fundamentally, right? France and Germany is is what we're talking. In reality, this 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 capitalist club, in the interests of, of the monopolies of, of German and French capitalism, those have always been at the heart of the European project. And how is how is the uh, relationship between them these days? Uh, like. How, how have their interests diverged over time uh, within the European Union?
1: Well, what's interesting about the relationship between France and Germany is they've always been competitors. And even at the, the very dawn of the European project, the intention of, of officials in the French government was to bind the still powerful West German economy, because, of course, Germany was uh, divided this time, the West German economy to French political powers. Uh, power germany was considered an economic giant and a political dwarf and the idea of the french imperialists was that they would somehow be able to use their political clout to dominate the german economy clearly that was misguided the economy won out in the end and germany has become the main power but always france has had slightly different interests as far as the french monopolies and french imperialism has been concerned they focus more on to the south in terms of the north african former colonies and to the more latin countries whereas germany has tended to look more to the east, as we saw with the massive expansion of the European Union and to a lesser extent the Eurozone to the east with countries like uh, Poland joining some of the Balkan countries uh, and, and former Soviet countries. This means that their interests, while things are good, they can pursue both of those quite happily, almost like a married couple with extremely different interests. But you can see that as things get a bit more difficult, shall we say, in crisis times, already with this question of Corona bonds, for example, that's come up, we saw, we saw this raised a little bit, Euro bonds at the time of the Eurozone crisis, but it's been raised much more sharply now because of the impact of the, the you know, Corona crisis, if you want to call it that, that the, the, the key question of who is going to pay for all this debt, and I'll come on to where that's come from, is becoming uh, entering into sharp contradiction, really. And, um, and for the first time with, with Macron, you're seeing a, a, a French leader come openly into conflict with Germany. I mean, back in the Eurozone crisis, Francois Hollande may have had a, a softer position than the Germans in relation to Greek debt, but they still had the same position of the Greeks need to pay their debts. Now, France is actually positioning itself at the forefront of this call for for the Germans effectively to uh, to share the debt load with the rest of the um, the European member states in the Eurozone countries, sorry.
2: And that represents a wider schism, doesn't it, between the kind of the northern kind of Hanseatic League, as they call it, and the southern kind of economies around Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain. And it seems like mm. France is, is kind of siding more with that southern side now. What, what you know, is, 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 uh, is this division uh, opening up further between the north and the south in Europe?
1: Absolutely, I'd say so um i mean the the difference in the trajectories of those economies has been even more pronounced over the last 10 years um at at the beginning of the 2009 crisis italy was you know we have still a very large economy it was a weaker economy than germany and it was more indebted in terms of its debt to gdp but it wasn't anything like in the position it's in now it's over 120 percent um debt to gdp ratio in italy
2: josh it's an interesting you mentioned that i'm just going to bring up a, a graph for the viewers to be able to see and okay, um, uh, you won't be able to see yourself, but at home That's people right. will be able to see it. Um, and it shows exactly what you're talking about. In 2008, uh, it was just over 100% of GDP. 2009, over 116%, and then it's shot up to 135, and it's been there for the last five yeah, been been there for the last few years. And interestingly, another graph, I'm just going to show for the viewers, um, is one of the. Um, of the italian debt at 135 percent compared to the greek and uh like obviously the greek debt crisis uh, the euro crisis that you talked about earlier uh was the last big time that there was this this schism that's never really been repaired i guess between the the north uh you know refusing to pay for the debts and the uh and the south who are accumulating these debts but you know can you can you explain a bit more about why this time is different because italy is not the same as Greece, is it, in the sense mm. of uh, its its role within the EU and, and, and the, the world economy. Um, so how is this time uh, the crisis on a higher level?
1: Well, the first point on that, as you've already mentioned, is the sheer scale of it. First of all, the, the recession that is hitting Europe now as we speak is deeper than the 2008 uh, and 2009 recession was. Um, it, there are predictions that GDP if for the year, European GDP will drop by 7 percent. That is, uh, I think, almost double. In, in 2009, the EU's GDP fell by just over four percent, four point three percent. So the scale of this crisis is going to be enormous. The effect that it's going to have on uh, budgets is also going to be enormous. Because it's important to remember that it's not just the drop in GDP that um, caused the eurozone crisis and is going to cause, uh, is already causing this crisis. It's the increase in government spending and borrowing at the same time. So what, what we're seeing right now an even grander scale than in 2008, is states like France, even Germany. Germany is is extending its borrowing by 150 billion euros in order to be able to try and pump prime the economy. Sorry, out of this slump, uh, Greece is having to extend its uh, its spending. Italy is having to expend its spend uh, extend its spending. France, I think, is spending another 45 billion euros in order to basically keep the economy going throughout this lump in the hope of a, a new recovery, that increase in spending and therefore borrowing at the same time as a drop in GDP means that debt to GDP ratios, You know the two things are moving in the opposite direction, they shoot up. In fact, estimates are that across the whole of Europe, not just in Italy, not just in the worst hit countries across Europe, you're going to see increase in debt to GDP of 10 to 15%. So you're looking at a situation where, just to bring in the Maastricht Treaty, the idea of the Maastricht Treaty was for the euro to be stable all countries would have to aim for debt to GDP ratios of 60% and a budget deficit of no more than 3%. Italy's already over double that and it's going to increase by as much as 20% in Italy's case. France is already almost at um, 100% or they're around 100%, Spain's at around 100%, I think Belgium's at 100%. It, it becomes untenable. Meanwhile, Germany, the Netherlands, Finland, other countries have much lower debt to GDP ratios. But their their, uh, costs of of borrowing, the yields on their government bonds, their state bonds are also going to increase because the demand for their borrowing is going to increase. This means that not only do you have a situation where the trajectories of the different states, the different economies are already in totally different directions, and at a certain point it becomes impossible to to bind together economies moving in different directions, but also times are going to be harder, so to speak, German capitalism. So at precisely the time that other European countries, including France, which is the second biggest economy in the Eurozone, precisely the time that these economies will be demanding of the Germans, who've done so well out of European integration, that they basically shell out and they subsidise the cost of lending for other countries so that collectively the European Union can get through this crisis. At exactly this time, Germany will be at at its least amenable to doing that. Not in in any small Sorry. So, so we're
2: seeing that now playing out in terms of this uh, Corona bonds issue, um, which I think you, you kind of briefly mentioned earlier. There's obviously been these spats around uh, this debt mutualization, get sharing out the debts that, uh, that are being accumulated from all this government spending, trying to share out across the eurozone uh, countries with these these Corona bonds. Can you explain a little bit more about exactly what those corona bonds are and 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 what kind of arguments have been raised and and you know basically whether these things are gonna be you know see the light of
1: day at all sure so a, the a corona bond is a euro bond but specifically to combat the, the impact the economic and you know health and social impact Of the coronavirus pandemic what euro bond is is it's what's referred to as a common debt instrument so in other words it's that the eurozone block as a whole rather than each state um, borrowing issuing state bonds as we do in britain as germany does as italy does because they're all doing it in euros all the eurozone countries would issue a single bond a single debt instrument that investors and lenders would then buy And that would therefore have the same yield. It would have the same um, interest rate that states have to pay. The impact of this would be that some states that have to borrow at a relatively high rate, like Greece and Italy, would see their cost of borrowing go down. That would mean that Italy, for example, would be able to borrow more to be able to overcome the worst of the crisis. This is the idea, anyway. Meanwhile, other countries that have extremely low uh, yields on um, on their bonds, such as Germany, which has negative yields on its bonds, and the Netherlands, they would inevitably see the cost of their lending rise and increase. And this is where this conflict comes in. Um, these I mentioned earlier the suspension of all these fundamental freedoms and rules. That hasn't caused, you know, it potentially will cause an existential threat to the European Union. That hasn't yet caused it to break up in no small part because actually all of the major players want to close their borders, want to uh, protect their national interests, want to start nationalizing companies. So I forgot to mention state aid rules, which is a big part of the Maastricht Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty uh, have been suspended in order for countries to make sure that national their national vital interests aren't uh, attacked by hostile takeovers from abroad and so on. All of these, these things, the, um, the European powers can happily get along with for now. But when it comes to the most powerful country, most powerful con- uh, economy in the Eurozone block, Germany, having effectively to pay for the, for the spending of other states, this is where it becomes um, a, a serious point of contention, so to speak. There was uh, Last week, there was this virtual summit Obviously, the, the European leaders excuse me, the European leaders can't meet in person, so they had a, a Zoom call, effectively, like what we're having. But for five and a half hours, and it was uh, much less amicable than the one we're having now, uh, in, on the eve of this meeting, nine Eurozone countries, or the leaders of them, including France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, wrote a letter to the leader of the council, somebody called Charles Michel, calling for corona bonds, a decision to be made in favour of this common debt instrument. Call it what you will. That um, conference call, after five and a half hours, resulted in no decision whatsoever. Now, just like any giant impersonal bureaucracy, the EU needs to have unanimity on all questions. And so they have to have a joint statement at the end of these council meetings. The Italian leader, Giuseppe Conte, the prime minister, actually refused for a period, along with uh, San Pedro Sanchez, the uh, leader of Spain, re- refused to sign up to this common statement. So Charles Michel had to run around finding some kind of compromise. And in the end, the compromise text was "This council resolves that we'll come back to this in two weeks and sort something out. In other words, they've decided to come back uh, to disagree, to agree to disagree. And this is a common
2: uh, thing we see in the EU, isn't it? The the masters of kicking the can down the road, making fudge, however you want to put it. Um, You know, it, it doesn't seem like they can ever come to any agreement. Is that coincidental? You know, you often see these headlines from the liberal press imploring the leaders to come together and show political will and all this kind of thing is it is is it just down to political will or is there something more fundamental at play here that 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 means that you know as as Benjamin Franklin I think put it you know either they hang uh, together or they hang separately
1: Mm, I think that's a really important point because yeah we we can make point we can point out the fact that Really, the European Union and the Eurozone has been kicking the can down the road ever since 2009. And sometimes it appears like, oh, the leaders are short-sighted or blind or, or just or, or so wrapped up in their self-interest. But I think that would be a slightly superficial take on it. Um, in reality, the impotence of the institutions of the European Union and of the leaders of the European nations collectively to find some kind of common strategy stems entirely from the fact that actually this union is based on a series of individual capitalist nation-states that have their own interests. And when their intre- these interests come into conflict, the institutions find themselves suspended in midair. You can see this in the European Central Bank, in Christine Lagarde. Christine Lagarde is an interesting figure because back in 2015, she was at the forefront of telling starving Greeks that they have to pay their debts. Now, at the head of the ECB, having first said that it was not the ECB's job to, to assist the Italians effectively to close the spread, that means the difference between Italian bond yields and German bond yields, she's completely turned 180 degrees. and Now she's calling for some kind of corona bond instrument. I think she is reflecting the very real threat, actually, that these nine Euro, eurozone, eurozone uh, countries could actually form a totally separate block at a certain stage. Uh, in the Financial Times, Wolfgang Munchau actually went so far as to advocate that these nine eurozone countries create their own Eurobond. That means that within the euro and participating in all the institutions of the European Union, these countries collectively would issue their own debt instrument, um, effectively in opposition to the rest of the bloc. That would be the beginnings. That would be the the the, the fault lines of a future split. And I think that um, the likes of Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Christine Lagarde no recognize this all they can do is call for solidarity the word has been worn out reading articles about uh, the current crisis in europe you've seen i've seen the reference to solidarity more than when i attend trade union rallies frankly it's sickening to see these european imperialists advocating solidarity when they've literally spent 10 years starving the workers across europe particularly in a place like greece and italy it comes across let's say disingenuous to say the least but it does also reflect something it reflects a desperation i would say of the most far-sighted the, the most far-sighted strategists of capital and the leaders of European capitalism, seeing their own impotence in the face of the greatest crisis the European Union has ever faced and actually watching the two national uh, nation-states, the, the various nation-states, sorry, moving in different directions. They know where this is leading um, and they they can see a parallel with the 1930s and the rise of protectionist tendencies that actually transformed the 29 crash into the Great Depression. But it's one thing they want to avoid Uh, at all costs, and at precisely the time that the European Union should be acting collectively to stop that, they're actually falling into it. And that shows, doesn't it, that these protectionist tendencies are based more in just the short-sightedness of leaders. These protectionist tendencies are actually based in the fundamental nature of the capitalist nation-state and the inability of capitalism, despite its global international economy, to overcome these limitations. There's one other point. I um, mean, feel free to interrupt if I've gone on too long on this point. But something that I wanted to bring in about why this crisis is actually even worse, even deeper, and a bigger threat to European integration than 2009, is because over the last 10 years we've had austerity applied, attacks on the working class in all of the countries in Europe in one way or another, and. In this context of crisis and austerity, you've had a political polarization and the rise of what uh, some uh, commentators refer to as populism, both on the right and the left. And you're seeing even in the relatively more stable countries like Germany... Parties like the Alternative for Deutschland uh, party putting immense pressure from the right on the Christian Democrats who are in government. And actually, the Christian governments are now split, not formally split, but they're split on what to do about this threat threat from the right. In Denmark, right wing nationalist xenophobic parties, uh, party, sorry, is is starting to call the tune um, even of government policies and has been for some time, actually, has been since the refugee crisis. The point of this, the importance of this is the, the protectionist tendencies and the likelihood of politics in these different national member states to veer towards even leaving the euro at a certain stage is much, much higher than it ever was in uh, in 2009. To so take so that, Italy that, as a that, prime example.
2: That really raises the question then, Josh, just to um, just to come to uh, you know the, the end. Unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, we've we've been uh, talking for about half an hour now and uh, just want to get to the to the to the perspectives, really, because um, you know, you've talked about splits, you've talked about solidarity, uh, you've talked about this existential uh, crisis. And it's not just an economic crisis, it's a political crisis. So what's the perspective for Europe? You know, what, what are the different possible outcomes that we could see uh, in, in the in the years ahead?
1: Well, I suppose it can go one of two ways, although I think that only one of them is a, is a genuinely likely prospect. One solution to this crisis that's been put forward by people like Guy Verhofstadt, who's a member of the European Parliament, is that this crisis should be a catalyst for a whole new qualitative leap in European integration. The only way that the nation-states of Europe can actually face this crisis collectively is by going to Eurobonds, going to a, a genuine unified European executive and even europe even european-wide taxation. in other words moving even further towards the crisis, uh, the creation of a european capitalist uh, nation uh, state sorry um the problem is what that would require is on the one hand for um the the northern countries like germany to effectively be funding um the the spending of other states in the form of this euro bond and on the other hand there is another side to this it isn't just germany that's been a holdout the the southern states, such as Italy, would effectively have to put their budgets under the control of the north. Neither of these want to do this. And in reality, as this crisis bites and as the protectionist uh, tendencies across the whole world produce a a depression comparable to the 30s, these kind of unravelling tendencies that we've only really been able to briefly sketch and these competing national interests will eventually provoke a genuine split and a genuine... Um, collapse, perhaps even. I think Italy is clearly a flashpoint. And to, to go very briefly onto that I- inclusion, a, a recent poll, I think, done in on the 13th of March in Italy, found that two thirds of Italians polled thought that being in the European Union was a disadvantage. Uh, this is an enormous increase, about uh, from roughly about 40% uh, previously. The Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti announced that if Europe doesn't rise to this unprecedented challenge, and by that he meant create corona bonds, the whole whole European structure loses its raison d'etre to the people. In other words, as long as this crisis continues, and as long as the cost of this crisis is pushed onto the workers of Europe, regardless of the country, the the likelihood of a Brexit-type situation happening in one of the founding states of the European Coal and Steel Cartel, Italy and other countries becomes more and more likely. The more the ECB buys bonds, I didn't even get to mention about its 750 billion bond buying program, the more uh, measures they take to to, uh, paper over the crisis, the more they're actually making more likely um, a collapse uh, of an even greater and more bitter scale. And to kind of finish up, this is not something just because I'm predicting this does not mean that I think this is in any way progressive. The European Union has completely, if it had any usefulness, it's completely outlived it, and it's failed in its mission to unify Europe. However, that doesn't mean that the mission to Europe, euro, unify Europe isn't necessary and progressive. And if and when the euro and the European Union should collapse, ultimately, as a result of these contradictions, what will result is is not going to be um, you know nice democratic peace, but rather a rise in, even worse, nationalism and, um, and uh, much more bitterness and suffering for the people of Europe. The only way out of this crisis is on the basis of European integration. The Europe can only be unified on a democratic basis and on a genuinely progressive basis, on a working class basis, only on the basis of collectively struggling against our respective capitalist states on the European continent, whether we're in the EU or not, only on the basis of that collective struggle, socialist struggle, to do away with capitalism, to do away with imperialism, can we actually harness the resources, the technology, the populations, the skills of Europe to not only tackle the health crisis of, of, of the coronavirus, but also to tackle the economic crisis and, and to begin a whole new phase, basically, in the history of the continent and of the human race. So those are the, it, to, to, if I was gonna sum it up in an expression, I'd say it's socialism or barbarism, as we've heard many times before.
2: Thank you, Josh. I think that's a good place to end for tonight. Um, it sounds like the EU is gonna be the next victim of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And uh, uh, as you say, we need to, do our bit to be fighting for the socialist alternative the socialist united states of europe so thank you very much for joining us and discussing this question with us tonight uh stay My safe question. and healthy um and uh i'm just gonna bring in here the uh, social media links uh for people to be able to see at home uh so if you want to follow us obviously on all the social media facebook youtube twitter the podcast for future episodes and of course as josh said we really, really need you to join us in the fight for socialism and help support us by donating and subscribing so that we can bring about a socialist Europe and a socialist world, as Josh has been discussing tonight.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.